Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trondar Neuenheim, futurist and author. In episode 104 of the podcast, the topic is the future of thinking. Our guest is Patrick Scannell, author and digital technology leader. In this conversation, we talk about how human thought is going through a paradigm shift where we are learning to coexist with technology in new ways and what it will take to enable positive human outcomes. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurize.org. I hope you can also leave a positive review on iTunes or in your favorite podcast player. It really matters to the future of this podcast. Thanks so much. Let's begin. Pat, how are you? I'm doing great. I've been looking forward to this conversation. So have I, and I've been reading. You um, you haven't given me all your books, but you did give me one, and it was uh, it's uh, it's a mouthful. It's a very interesting topic, one that I've been interested in. You you claim somewhere in the book that only two thousand people in the world, you know, are interested in your book, and if that's the case, I saw a few reviewers in there, and then I, I'm interested. I mean, you've reached uh, a little proportion of those people already. Yeah, I've had about 40 people uh, pre-read that. Generally, uh, leaders in fields around the world, different fields. I am interested in you and what got you to study this very interesting topic because, well, so let me just recount what I've understood so far. You grew up in Lake Placid, which I like a lot because it's a skiing town. Yep, and uh, you did a lot of cross country skiing, like m- more than a lot. Uh, you can talk about that for a second. Um, you did your military service. You have a degree in finance. You basically you're a little bit like Franz Kafka. You write. You have a degree, uh, or you work in finance, and you write books from four a.m. to nine a.m. That's right. I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, I don't think what I don't get from that, and then you know, throughout your career, I, I know you you have this. Uh, you say that you have been part of emerging tech in three different waves, and maybe four. Um, there are a bunch of other things that I fi- have found out about you, um, but I want you to maybe just explain to people how you get interested in the disruption of the thinking process, essentially, which is what you're you're worried about, and and how how you got to that. Just give me, give us a sense. Sure. Um, <clears throat> you know, like most things, it was kind of by accident, right? But the uh, the little bit of a winding path, uh, you want me to start a little bit of the background and how I got to that? Uh, well, I'm just interested in what makes you tick because, uh, you know, I think it's an interesting topic. But uh, like several people have pointed out about you, your professional background, if you don't look under the rug, does in no way really explain why you care about these things in the early hours of the morning? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll do a, a few seconds on kind of my early years just because it, it's formative. Uh, when I graduated from high school, the, uh, the yearbook quote was, what if? And uh, I had a lot of opportunities, uh, but I had too many opportunities that I was passionately interested in. And I, I, it was hard for me to pick one. Um, I ended up settling on that. But that kind of inquisitiveness uh, kind of carries through to today. Um, you know, by day, uh, my day job is uh, technology, as you've indicated. I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, almost 15 years now in telecom, but generally catalyzing the adjacent industries, working with the leaders of, you know, smart grid or smart cars or internet of things, et cetera. And 
briefly the way I got to this topic was when uh, I had an exit, the company, the JV-backed company that I was working for got acquired. I had some opportunity, right? I could put some money, a bunch of money in the bank and, and double down and go find another job. But, you know, we talked about this earlier. I, I had time to kind of look back and say, what's the nar- narrative of my, my story? And the narrative of my story was that I'd been in tech in, in these four different waves. The, the first was, you know, the internet and then uh, mobile and then the internet of things. And I wanted to figure out where I wanted to place my time and energy going forward. And one of the things I did was I, I, I took a step back and looked at industries that were uh, a glimmer or had serious problems. One of those was manufacturing you and I talked about. But the other one was I was still troubled by the assumptions that we as technologists make about how people will adopt technology. You know, I worked with the cable companies and, you know, people were watching TV for now it's almost five hours a day. The mobile phone companies, we were staring at phones two hours a day. But there's other technologies too, like self-driving cars or, you know, ro- robots that, you know, clean our house. So I was asking some really basic questions of myself. What causes us to interact with technology the way we do? This wasn't the basic dopamine and visual circuits argument, right? That we stare at TVs because it stimulates uh, the V1 circuits in the brain, whatever, and that gets dopamine. That's just too simple for me. We, we engage with a lot of technologies across the course of our day, and I just had never once seen anyone say, here's why people do that. And I felt if I got some insight into that, I might be able to you know, find a new industry to invest my time in, but maybe b- make better products and, and make better products from a, you know, a commercial hat, but also from a moral hat, right? We as technologists push stuff out in the world. I, I saw all these people staring at their phones as they drove, and I was a leading global evangelist for 4G, and I'm here. here's the results of it, people dr- staring at their phones as they drive. I felt like I had a responsibility to ask those questions. And, and at that point, I fell down a rabbit hole, <laughs> and, and I got into a lot of different fields, um, but I just, <laughs> I just kept pursuing those questions. Why do we engage with technology the way we do? And then I backed into the problem that, uh, that surrounds the book. Well, I, um, I I can't not talk about this because, you know, in, in sort of this history of thought series that you have been working on for the last few years, uh, one thing is is that book, but but then in your life as well, you, you've built a treehouse using mortise and, and, and tenon, <laughs> basically a very ancient lumber technology. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think you, you seem to combine this theoretical interest with very... So technology is practical at the end of the day, right? And this is also what I get from your book that you don't have this. I mean, you, you know, we can talk about all these theorists, but you, you know, you're sort of aiming to be a big thinker in the mold of like a Harari or a Jared Diamond, and you know, these guys that write books that are breathtaking in scope because they cover a large amount of history, large ground, and and their arguments also are macro-based arguments. But on the other hand, you seem pretty concrete. And, you know, it's, it's uh, in the hands as well. So I, I want you to maybe address this role before we get into the, the detail of everything. But how does technology not just affect our brain, but actually affect our bodies? And maybe this foreshadows a little bit of your thinking as well, because I, I do recognize that you, you're not one of those theorists that think of thinking as only in the brain. Yeah, that, that's right. Um, well, let me... Uh... <clears throat> There's a lot of different directions I could take that, but let me say uh, the, 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 the classic American experience right now is that we are stressed out 
fat, broke, um, and, and too tired to do anything. Right. I mean, I, 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 I paint with a, a bit of a, a brush there and I, I apologize to those people. It doesn't fit, but I think that that's a fairly accurate, uh, description. And yet we have all this great technology that's supposed to have made life better for us. How, how do those two things coincide? And, and my argument is, is that how we think shapes how we adopt technologies, not just, um, you know, what we watch, but the microwave that we use for food and, and, uh, you know, the self-driving cars and the way that those things coexist doesn't today result in a positive outcome for most people. And it's really ironic. Uh, in, in fact, so if I could back up, there, there's, um, it makes sense to think of my work in terms of the, the narrative scope, right? So when I first started out, and, and, and forgive me for kind of going back, but um, I couldn't find the books that I wanted to read. That gave me the fundamental answer for why we think the way we do. And so I ended up trying to write those. And, and those two books are The History of Thought, Book One, which is The Coevolution of Technology and Cognition in Primates. Um, and then I did Book Two, which is The History of Coevolution of Technology in Humans. So the first book goes back tens of millions of years, about 60 million years, and spans a number of disciplines, but shows how the brain that we arrived at as humans evolved uh, in the twists and turns in the primate evolution. And I do the same thing for humans. So the reason I wrote those two books is I wanted to answer those questions. Why does the brain work the way it does? And, you know, Harari starts 50,000 years ago, but that brain that we had 50,000 years ago was relatively the same for the 150,000 years before that. What happened along the way to cause our brain? What are we optimized to do? Those books... Um, are in pre-publication, and I've got world-leading co-authors uh, in, in each of those areas. Uh, they're some of the best in the world in prim primate uh, cognitive sciences and uh, uh, human cognitive uh, evolution in archaeology and prehistory. So those books have been sitting in one of my co-authors' desks for a while, waiting for some edits to send back to the editor. And so I, I wanted to step forward into the books that I wanted to write. I didn't set out to write these history books. I set out to make the world a better place for me and the people I know. So I wrote this book, The Disruption of Thought. And in the course of doing it, as you saw, the corpus is you know 360 pages. 150 pages of that is this uh argument I have called the great irony of technology. I've now cleaved these two books apart, so both will be much shorter. Shorter, But the great irony of technology is just that, that we have all this amazing technology and it doesn't leave us better off. So my body, uh, as I sit here, is fatter than it needs to be because the way I adopt technology. And, and if I thought differently, um, I, I could do a better job of that. But I'm also stressed. My blood pressure is high. I work hard. And, and the way we adopt all this amazing technology what happens in our brain and other ways that we think literally shapes our body, our lifespans, and, you know, the families that we have, et cetera. I don't know if that's where you wanted me to go, but uh, that's my first cut. Well, look, I, I, I don't have any expectations. I do have a question, though. What do you mean by making a scorecard to assess human flourishing? It's uh, something I found in the book. You call it the SDT scorecard. And if I'm correct, uh, you carry through some examples, and there's three parts to it, competency, connectedness, and autonomy. Pardon me if I misunderstood. No, you, you didn't misunderstand at all. All right, so... I make the argument in my book that thought doesn't work very well for us. Now, I described it in personal terms, right? The way I think leaves me, you know, stressed out, fat, broke, tired, whatever. Um, but how do you apply that across populations, especially different populations? So you can say, you know, if I say we're all better off 
than we were 20, 50, 100 years ago, but we think we're worse off. Um, a lot of people push back on, on it. I have, you know, friends that are black that say, are you kidding? Have you seen the, the shootings and, and you know, uh, the, the murders by police? The, the truth is that has been going on for hundreds of years in America, but we now have body cams and, and uh, you know, social media and others that really amplify that message of inequality. So the argument that we're all better off but we feel worse off, really needed to be unpacked across a wide range of people. Now, when you do this, there's existing scorecards. I mean, there's a world happiness report. There's uh, different uh, uh, scorecards for America, but they're all bespoke to specific organizational purposes. And they, they all work off of specific data. Now, if you wanted to get broad and deep, you'd have to find the data set that supports you. And what I did was I essentially did an inventory of all the different uh, scorecards that were out there. Uh, I've, you know, the UN has, uh, an, you know, charter, uh, has uh, fundamental rights, you know, are those the things that we should be trying to achieve? Is it happiness? Is it fitness? Is it income equality, etc.? And I found all of those to be a little too bespoke, a little too focused on, on something else. And, and or, you know, you can't take the UN Declaration of Human Rights and find the data for all of those across all the different groups I wanted to study. So what I did was I, I, I kind of simplified. I, there's a thing called uh, self-determination theory. Uh, comes out of Decky and Ryan's research. Uh, it, they're seminal in this field. And it basically says that for a person to flourish, they need three things. They needed autonomy, connectedness, and a sense of personal progress. Not even real personal progress, just a sense of it. And when I went back through the inventory of scorecards that I had used uh, from various reports and think tanks, et cetera, I was able to use those three things to kind of apply to different groups. Um, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, um, affluent uh, teens right now are... I would argue one of and several other. There's a great report called Stress in America that spends a lot of time on 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 young teens, and they talk about them being the most stressed out group in America. They think they're inheriting a world that's gone to hell. Um, they have very narrow expectations of what aesthetics they need to project in the world to to be popular in social media. They have very narrow expectations of how to succeed in the world, which is go to college, which is very expensive, and get a job and make a lot of money. And this creates a very little autonomy. Um, the connectedness is, uh, I'm not, I'm not a social media critic. I, I don't make my, my, uh, my story by pointing the finger at social media, but social media does contribute to this breakdown of strong ties that we all used to have in this increase of weak ties. And so the, uh, autonomy, uh, to do what they want is kind of pre, uh, uh, pre-prescribed for a lot of, uh, uh, teens, the connectedness in terms of strong ties are, are eroding, and their sense of personal progress is really, really hard to put on the board because even the smart, rich kids are surrounded by other smart, rich kids that on social media and in real life all look like they're doing better than they are. So that those three things, autonomy, connectedness, and self, uh, you know, sense of personal progress, I found I was able to use different data in different populations to create narratives of why different segments, about 15 different segments of the U.S. population and the world, uh, can be kind of summarized under those three things. But to do so, I, I pulled in the data from those other uh, variables and scorecards that are out there. Um, I mean, you know, th this will be snapshots of, of, of some of this thinking. Um, there, there are a lot of thoughts that I had when I was reading this, but uh, 
One of the arguments you're you're making um, is uh, is about human data processing capability. Uh, you know, and you you discuss this argument that the you know where is the average human brain today versus the world's top supercomputers and all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, it seems to me that it's not really a comparison uh, more than it is you're using it to prove that a lot of the processes that are ongoing in our brain, first off, they're actually even today very poorly understood, I would argue. But but the vast majority of these cognitive processes are, are unconscious. Um, but I was struggling with what do you make of that? So is it good? Is it bad? Or, you know, how, how can you action, you know, what's actionable about realizing that so much is unconscious? Because I, I think there's, there's a lot of debate about, you know, what, what is happening to our cognitive function generally. Uh, and we thought we sort of understood it in kind of the psychometric era that, that we, psychology has gone through here. But with, with uh, you know, n- new data coming in, I think we realized that we understand a little bit less. So what do you make of that statement that a lot of our cognitive process, even our forgetfulness, not, not just our memory, but our forgetting, not only are they poorly understood processes, but, but they are also, for the moment, largely unconscious. What does that mean for the future of thought? Sure. So to answer that question, I have to kind of set the, set the table a little bit uh, with two parables. The first is the, the problem that we have in our world, which is incredibly and increasingly complex, is that we're incented to be specialized, right? So we go deep, not wide. And um, the result of that is the three blind men and the elephant problem, right? If I ask a, a psychologist about the brain or uh, somebody at Neuralink about the brain or, you know, uh, you know I had a, a, a virtual book club of um, cognitive scientists, and they were all chairs of departments at R1 universities or editors-in-chiefs of, of the various leading magazines, and we talked about the model. And each of them came from such a different perspective, they couldn't really understand each other because they had different frames of reference. I think that's a real good metaphor for how all of us, whether we're pop psychologists in the magazines or see something on, on, on social media, we all see a different part of the problem. What I try to do is, is represent the whole thing. In so doing, I, I run into another parable, and this one is uh, David Foster Wallace tells this joke that one old fish swims along, he runs into two uh, young fish, and you may have seen this in the book. I, I, I put it in there, which is uh, he says, hey, boys, how's the water? And they can say, what the hell is water? Now, on one of your earlier uh, podcasts, you were talking with Matthew about uh, the surveillance state, you know, Zuboff's work. And, and Matthew was saying, you know, first of all, I can't describe it because it's like we're in the machine, so we can't describe the machine. So when I go to, to describe thought, it's really, really hard because I'm describing the water that we take for granted. We, we literally unconsciously take it for granted. So I'm getting to your unconscious uh, uh, point here. So... In the book, I have a very simple example. I sit down to watch television. This is really straightforward stuff, right? It's me controlling myself, cognitively sitting down, consciously deciding what we do. Now, and we flip through the channels and we choose something. The truth is, is we all bumble through life kind of like that. We go to a meeting, we uh, you know, drive the car, we think we're consciously in control and that all of our thinking occurs in the brain. It doesn't. We don't think that way. And, and I try to make the case in the book that we think on three different planes. 
The first is we, we think with our brain. It's massively modular. It has inherited functions that it was optimized for, but it's optimized for an environment that's very different than the one we live in today. Now I'm not making a Stone Age brain argument here. I'm not E.O. Wilson or Harari. I'm saying in the last 200 years, the environment we live in is so dramatically different that the things that we grew up, our brains evolved in an environment that was uh, risk, uh, you know, rich in, uh, in uh, risks and, and poor in abundance and resources. We now have inverted that pyramid. We have very little risks. We have to watch television to stimulate our risk reward thing, uh, but we have all this abundance. So how that plays out in terms of unconsciousness is, is when I sit down to watch something on television, I think I'm watching something to zone out and go to bed. So I turn on Game of Thrones because I've got these primal circuits in my brain that are wired to bias to pay attention to violence and sex because it was adaptive when we lived in you know groups of 150 or less. But the majority of us lived in groups of 150 or less up till about a couple hundred years ago. It's only very recently that we've had this metropolitan kind of bias that has completely turned things around. But yet, in our brain, we have this unconscious need. We think we're choosing this show because it's what we want to watch. But the truth is, is it gives us the opposite of what we want. We wanted to zone out and go to bed, but it increases our cortisols or our heart rate. and We're stressed out. And we go to bed. We don't sleep well. But we do it because we're, we're wired that way. Another unconscious thing is, let's say I watched the... Uh, uh, the Social Dilemma uh, documentary, because some people in my office were watching it, and I wanted to look like I was familiar with this and that I was had an opinion. I wanted I want to have influence on my peer group, right? This comes out of uh, that 150 or less, but it also comes out of uh, primate research, right? You 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 do things that will give you leverage and, and clout with others. So we don't only think with our brain; we think socially and culturally. And so that's the second plank I, uh, of the argument that I make, which is we talk and think using words. Words are socially constructed. As Harari talks about, we invoke myths and symbols that are uh, embodied. They don't exist, but they're embodied with value in our social and cultural milieu. So if I make a reference to the social dilemma, you know what it is. If I make a reference to money, it doesn't exist, but you know what I'm talking about. These are socially and culturally constructed, but they're almost completely unconscious. So the brain is very unconscious, as I, I talk about in the book. Social cultural things are very unconscious, and we see this playing out in uh, the racial tensions in the United States. We inherited cultural biases that may or may not have been adaptive 50 years ago, but no longer are, are, are they right, but we still stumble over them. And then lastly, there's technology. I think I, I make the case that we think literally through technology, um, and the simplest example is I know my wife's phone number, but I don't know my two daughters' phone number because they're here and they're in Google Cloud. And if I lost the phone, I'd be able to find their phone number. So I've outsourced cognition, in this case, short-term or long-term memory, to technology around us. But we do the same thing when we sit down to watch television, which is we let the Netflix algorithms uh, scrape what other people have watched that are like me. They run that through a filter that's driven by their biases of advertising or whatever, and then they render that offering to me. So I think I'm sitting down watching television, consciously choosing something to watch, when in fact what's happening is three different layers of unconscious processes are working. Once we can understand that, we can then begin to find vectors that improve our ability to get what we want if we understand how we think. And, and again, most of it's unconscious. But that was a, a bit of a long-winded way, but I had to set the table for, for to answer that question.
No, it's good. It's good. So the three planes of thinking, I hadn't quite caught that in the book. I was going to ask you what those planes were, but it's for because I, I, I that's why I was bringing in the body. But you, for you, it's the brain, the social and the, and the technological or technology. For so sure. that brings me to a question, which I don't know that you really spend a lot of time on in the book, but I'm interested in algorithms precisely from the angle of you know, can they be regulated? Should they be regulated? Because there's a big debate now in, you know, in AI or in, in machine learning, in computer science and in the wider society, right, about, to your point about racial bias or any bias, you know, how, how are these algorithms created? What, what are they? How are they being applied? And, uh, you know, do they work well? Do they, or, or do they uh, work the way they say they will work? Or, or even... You know, should people uh, who use them or companies that apply them or governments disclose how certain algorithms work? So the counter argument would be from, you know, industry or the police or whoever's using them that we don't want to disclose this because it's, you know, proprietary to what we're trying to achieve. But on the other hand, you could sort of make the argument these algorithms are becoming such a big part of society. You were just pointing to Netflix, uh, maybe that is not detrimental to our life if we are watching the wrong movies because Netflix tells us so. But if you aggregate those kinds of algorithms, what are we going to do about those? And are those to you part of the problem? Or, uh, you know, and, and what, would you, what would your solutions be? Yeah. Um, so it's an interesting topic. It's certainly um, getting a lot of attention right now. The Algorithmic Justice League, the movie done on them was pretty good. Um, I, I believe it's an issue, and um, you know, it's one of the, one of the, one of these interesting things. We <clears throat> we tend to be so problem oriented that uh, the the discussion of it makes it sound like, oh my God, look at this fatal flaw in our society and our technology. The truth is, is we're discussing it. We're making it better. It's not right. It's not fair. It's not very well understood. But at least we're talking about it, and that's good news. So I just want to start with that good thing there. Um, I'm not, I, I've done a number of algorithmic work uh, in, in, my, in my career, uh, but I'm not an expert on it. And I'm not an ex expert on the topic. But what I am an expert on is, I, I think at this point in my career, is looking at how we think and, and those algorithms. So again, on one of your, your conversations, uh, you know, listening to your podcast is like eavesdropping on one of the most interesting dinner parties because you you hit such a range of people but matthew again uh talked about that's uh, one of the best compliments i've gotten <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, I aim for it to be a jeffersonian dinner an, an eternal yeah. jeffersonian dinner is my my goal yeah the, the the range and scope of the things that i i covered and uh, you were reading this morning and i was watching and listening so i was i was really fascinated um so when I, I, I look at algorithms, I, I touch on the topic of autonomy, right? Control. And, you know, we all want convenience, but we're willing to give up convenience for some technology that does something for us. When we do that, we give up control. Now, what most people don't realize is they're literally giving up control of their own thoughts. I mean, I, I think people have done a good job recently pointing the finger at social media and saying it, it, it causes uh, changes in the way people think. And, and it's a root cause for polarization uh, in the U.S. society in particular. But there's a, a bigger problem, which is the way we think. The way we think is anachronistic across all three of those planes. And because we, we don't realize that, we look for something else to blame and so we say, it's the social media companies. This is the big difference between me and, and Tristan. Tristan will say, 
it's the bad guy's fault. They're manipulating us. That's really disempowering because to change it, you're either hoping regulators are somehow going to be brighter than the uh, Silicon Valley or that you're somehow going to change what the Silicon Valley people are doing with their algorithms or, or other, other pockets around the world. If you're the average person in America, first of all, even the experts don't understand the algorithms, especially once we get into AI. They're black boxes. Um, so yeah. it's disempowering to be the average person and be told you're being manipulated by technology that even the experts don't understand because there's nothing you can do about it. I argue that it's us individually and collectively that create the demand for these technologies. If we can understand uh, – if you went into the grocery store 30 years ago and asked for gluten-free bread, there was no gluten-free bread. Was it the baking company's fault? Well, as we became more aware of what foods do to us and, and et cetera, et cetera, we were able to create markets of demand that caused shifts, not driven by regulations by you know, uh, you know people in D.C. Or, or Brussels, but by uh, shifting demand. And that's empowering to me. If I meet a mother or uh, – you know, uh, you know, a, a psychologist who's trying to make the world a better place, if they're trying to change social media, that's really difficult. But if I show them my model of how we think and I show how we have these anachronistic biases that cause us to attend to certain things and that you can begin making micro uh, uh, changes within your life uh, and using and adopting technology, I'm a fan of – so one of the other solutions here, uh, you may be familiar with uh, – uh, deep work. So the, the idea behind deep work, uh, Cal Newport, is that we all unplug from all this technology. Now, that would be great if unplugging from the technology worked. But the problem is not taken in isolation. Uh, I have a friend, a PhD uh, in, in Switzerland, and he goes, Pat, I'm just going up to my cabin. I'm like, but your kids are still walking around with these things. The problems of how technology is accelerating around us expands. And as we unplug from technology, we, we lose the ability to use technology to keep up with technology. So I think that, you know, a combination of micro changes to, uh, to what we do, which is empowering and gives you a sense of self-control, uh, a sense of personal progress that you control, not these external factors. I'm not pointing the finger of blame. I'm saying if I help you to understand it, then what you can do is then selectively engage with technology, whether it's Netflix or a self-driving car, to uh, make your life better. But I'm not a fan of unplugging and I'm not a fan of blaming the social media companies. Did I go anywhere interesting with that? Or feel free to push back on me. I, I, uh, no, you, you, no, no, no. Well, see, you, you actually answered my next question, partly. Because you know, I I did want to challenge you on this uh, in this session on your solutions because you you do say you know uh, somewhere in the book you say you know we adapt the human mind to better interface and interact uh, you know and coexist I guess with technology that's you know what your solution is to enable more positive uh, future human outcomes across all people. But my question still is sort of how because if you say unplugging is not the answer. Engaging sort of constructively with it and understanding what's going on is more the answer, but still, and and I and I understand you know it's not this hunt for bad guys, which I also find pretty you know ridiculous sometimes because there aren't that many bad guys. There are some, right? But that's pretty obvious who the real bad guys are. The rest is you know as you were saying you know to under truly understand demand, it is more 
us. You, we need to understand ourselves yeah. because that's how these technologies get created. Yep. It is out of the changes in demand. So they're obviously responding to something. But I, but I still don't get what your true answer is here. Is the answer that we do need to understand these technologies at a deeper level, but you can't opt out because if you opt out, it would be sort of like, you know, your day job is, you know, 4G and 5G. If you opt out of that network, all you're doing is just putting yourself out of the flow. That's right. right. If you're saying, exactly. I don't agree to this, I'm going to have an old phone, it's going to be a, you know, a phone and it's going to only accept 2G, right? Yeah. Okay, all you're doing is you're then not going to be watching that TED Talk, that wonderful TED Talk I just watched with you, uh, where you were talking about these things. Because you can't do it on that phone. Yeah. So now you're just cutting yourself off. But but the question still though for for the future is, you know, what's going to happen to to the future of thought or to the to our thought process if technology is continuing to engage uh, and we are continuing to engage with it and um, there is no respite from that and we don't really individually feel like we control any of it. Yeah. And we don't really have the choice to opt out. We could, you know, um, we, we, we could, you know, live a, a year, uh, you know, around the lake and, and, and write like, uh, uh, you know, write diaries about our observations of nature. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. But I don't know that it would solve anything. That's right. sort of what you're saying. Yeah. So first so where of where do we go with that? Yeah. I'm going to say, I don't know, because I think that's a starting point is saying, I don't know, but I can tell you how I think about it. The first is. If I get to very specific prescriptions with people, they immediately begin, first of all, this is a complex topic. We're, we're literally changing the existential nature of humanity, uh, using technologies which are complicated, the, you know, how we think which is complicated, and we're trying to, um, I mean, this is a big thing. And everyone brings their own particular bias, path dependencies, and expertise to the problem. Um, but by nature, if I was to pitch you uh, a tech, um, you are wired to start picking it apart. Well, where's the demand for that? You know, what are your risk factors, et cetera? That's just what we do. <clears throat> so if I begin talking about specific prescriptions, first of all, the prob problem is so broad, it has to have multiple lenses, multiple people from different disciplines working on it. Um, any one person who said that they think that they're the expert on a field, you should really begin to question. So I say, I don't know. But once I begin talking about specific prescriptions, what immediately happens is people leave behind the problem. They, 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 they mm -hmm. stop talking about the problem. Even if I do a good job of convincing them on the problem, I think what we need to do is, is popularize a discussion about the problem, how we think is being disrupted. That's, that's, that's the story. Now, you see lots of people talking about small town America, Main Street being disrupted by uh, Amazon, and people talk about it, and there's a conversation. But when you look at problem statements, um, concussions in football or global climate change, it started with a problem orientation phase. There were people mm. brought to the topic. Yeah. If I started to, to argue for carbon credit, carbon credit trading schemes in 1970s, first of all, everyone would tell me there's a stupid idea, there's no market for it, but they wouldn't understand the problem I'm trying to solve. It took three decades of people developing data and science before we'd created enough of awareness, not total awareness, but enough of awareness that we're, we're seeing new solutions of concrete and, and et cetera. So this is my long-winded way of saying why I don't like talking about prescriptions or, or solutions. Uh, what I'd like to do is put these concepts out there, 
draw a few thousand people together, set up a, a global NGO that uh, rewards, like academics today don't get rewarded for doing interdisciplinary work. The emeritus folks or the young faculty people might be willing to take a risk, but the mid-career faculty people aren't used to having you know a chemist uh, publish with an anthropologist and uh, a physics guy, right? You don't you don't go outside your field. So the first thing we need to do is bring together people to have a better awareness of the problem I'm trying to describe. And from that group, I think we can begin setting the charter for how we begin to assemble a, a market basket, an ever evolving market basket of, of solutions. So I'm going to do what I never do and switch to a, a specific solution that might address this, right? Um, first is literally just being aware of this, I think differently about how I use technology every day. So once you begin thinking about this, um, one of the things that I think we, we, we spend a lot of time doing is we pursue values that are set either anachronistically or um, by others outside of us. Uh, we do this in school all the time when we rip jeans. We do that because all of our friends have ripped jeans. So we, we go out and buy the ripped jeans, right? At work, we pursue unicorns because that's the cool and sexy thing. And then at, I talked anachronistically that we have this desire, inherited <clears throat> genetic desire, that's not from 50,000 years ago, but from a couple hundred years ago about the foods to eat or even how to have sex or who to have sex with. But technology has changed all of that. So we pursue anachronistic values. Just being aware of that, I literally think differently about the urges and things I, I set out to do. And I'm like, am I doing this because I want to make money? Like, the book that I'm writing right now, I'll never make any money writing it. I'm not going to do Harari-like speaking fees. There's a disincentive to do what I do, especially at my day job. So just being aware of that, um, I pursue different values. So I literally think knowing about it helps. But let me switch to what you do, which is here's a unicorn business idea. Maybe you and I can go start this. I'm hard at work on this idea, but I'm telling you in the world. So... Um, this is a, a tremendously complex device. So is my computer. So is my car. And most of that that's going on there is being optimized and managed for me by an operating system. We need a personal operating system, a place, a data trust, and a marketplace of solutions, which you could download and on all your different devices. You could go in there and set the values that you want. I'm not saying they have to leave you skinnier and, and smarter. You could say, oh, I want to get laid this weekend or, or whatever. You can go in there and have a dashboard of the things that you want to do and set it and forget it and walk away and have reminders and things across all the different tech. I see a federated marketplace, including your iWatch and, and your, you know, your other devices, that instead of having silos of personal data that are owned by the, the companies about me, um, I'm now creating a marketplace, which is, you and I are both thinking about how incredibly complex it would be to pull this off. But if it existed, this would be a tremendous boon to the problem that we just described. And creating market-based solutions and awareness at the same time begin to chip away at the, the problem. If there's any success there, and, and, and then that helps demonstrate any demand for new products, that will spur more innovation from other people. It's not a crowdsourced approach. It's a, it's kind of a build it and they will come, but don't try and create a, a company that's going to you know, have proprietary solutions that, and, and that's going to be the single silver bullet that's going to solve all this. It's creating a base of awareness um, that'll create you know, actual change 
and then spur on some targeted technolo technologies that can catalyze other technologies in the right direction. But again, 30 years ago, there was no gluten-free bread. No one will buy any of the things that I kind of sketched out there until they become aware of the problem statement. Did I sufficiently dodge the question? I, I found that actually... No, yeah, I found it very interesting, and let's talk about it offline. I think uh, yeah. it's a longer discussion, but it's a very good one, and and I think you're right. I think there will be such a product. I, I've, you know, for my, my on my end, I've worked on a tiny little slice of the problem you just uh, stated, and I've also failed at it, uh, you know, several times over the last few years. So that's a longer story. We can take it at a at a second day, but uh, let me just end with one question to you. Um, in terms of the vision for the future state of thinking of the world, of society, of nation states, you write and you told me in our prep call, you said that if people really understood sort of, uh, or, or if people really were presented with two disruptive sort of solutions to all these problems, they would rebel because... There, there, you know, in theory, there's, you know, your thinking would lead to, there, there's sort of a shock needed to really create this awareness. Otherwise, it's going to go pretty slowly and happen in these small uh, circles of yours, of, of, of faculty who's willing to talk about it. But where are you going with that? So what kind of disruptive situation are we, in your opinion, heading for in the next few decades? If this just continues, even at this pace, but there's no reason to think that we'd continue at this pace, it would obviously at some point continue uh, and then have an exponential change and, and then continue at the same pace. So, yeah. so there, there will be some exponential moment. Uh, you know, if you're of the singularity lot, you, you, know, you think that all technologies have, you know, right now are becoming exponential. You know, that may or may not be the case, but where do you think generally we're heading and and is that sort of even the wrong focus because again you you sort of seem to say that if we even if someone knows where we are heading focusing too much on it is just going to create sort of shock and misunderstanding and and what we need now is more reflection than than solutions so uh, yeah i wanted you to just point that out so I'm trying to weave together uh, some points into a, a cogent statement here. The um, first is, is I have been making references to academics because the, the discussions I have with the commercial people tend to be a little bit more sensitive. Um, but I've now done conversations with about 50 people, you know, uh, partners in major VC firms, uh, you know, uh, senior, you know, VP and above and C-levels at, at media companies and, and tech companies. And for the right person, this is tremendously interesting. And while the book in its current draft doesn't quite communicate the point very clearly, I think I've presented this as the most important issue in the world to CTO of the CIA, uh, you know, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Research, and uh, a Chief Scientist for Department of Homeland Security, people whose job it is to measure risk. And I said, this is the most important issue in the world. They agreed. Um, I said thought is being disrupted to a bunch of cognitive scientists who, after looking at my work, they've agreed. So if that's the case, uh, and, and that has targeted, maybe narrow appeal to certain types of thinker in all these different fields, um, where we go is, is, is kind of a gloomy picture. Let's assume that I do a 
good job of making an issue and, and we get to create a dialogue and there begins to uh, be technologies that get created uh, by lots of people to address the issue. It'll be adopted slowly by certain people. They, they're probably the people who tend to take better care of themselves anywhere. They're looking for solutions. And what you'll have is a new haves and have-nots. If you buy my vision, let's say a personal operating system, people who use it will be happier, better connected. They'll be using technology. They'll probably be making more money, uh, but they might have different sets of values. Now, these people will be progressing where the people who aren't using it aren't. And so it's not no longer about money. It's about flourishing in America, right? And you'll have these haves and have-nots. And there'll be people who reject technologies like this for a variety of reasons, for the same reason that people would reject a vaccine. Well, I don't want somebody controlling the data from my smart bed and my smart car and my watch. I trust Apple to take care of me, but I don't like somebody new mixing. There'll be people who don't. And I think that that creates a new problem going forward if I'm successful. So I'm painting that out so we can begin creating solutions to problems that our solutions create. But what if I don't, if I'm not successful? I gave a talk to NATO, uh, a keynote uh, a couple years ago, where I talked about the disruption of thought is the underlying uh, vector force uh, behind what I call the, the disruption of civilization. So today, you know, we have these historical institutions that have power, countries and, and, and companies and, and churches, etc. But they were based upon old technologies. Uh, it was hard to associate non-geographically. Uh, so we associated geographically. I, I'm going to cheer for the Packers because I live in that town, right? Uh, it's another part of these unconscious socially derived things. But once we begin dealing with technologies that allow us to span the world in less than a fraction of a second and affiliate based upon topics or needs or, or, or whatever, um, I think you have the ability to begin undermining the role of the, the, the country. Um, we see this when you see citizen, citizen responses to vaccination campaigns in, in pandemics. The government moves too slow and these other entities move faster. I think we're gonna, we, start, we already see this with social movements, you know, Black Lives Matter and others. So the idea that force is devolved or power is devolved from the, the country to uh, social groups that are ad hoc, that come together you know, in a different mix around different topics. These people aren't, you know, uh, uh, typecast. Um, then the question is, is what's the role of the state? But a bigger problem becomes when you realize that the technologies are rapidly disrupting all these values in our lives and the institutions like the military are set up to preserve this fixed institution behind us that has radically changed. Now we have to rely on the government to accelerate its response to uh, the problems that people really face on the things that they value. And so they may not look, for example, to Biden to cure cybersecurity on the colonial pipeline, but they might turn to some hacker or, or some new gas solution or whatever. So the, the role of the nation state is going to change in such a way that even if you step aside from the hegemonic comparison of us and China and the tensions that are going on there, I think these, these democratization and uh, non-geographically affiliated technologies erode in such a way that the nation states will be threatened. Um, and most, maybe more importantly, if you buy my story, all this technology, amazing technology, I point out that Pinker and a number of, of, of authors have done a really good job of summarizing that this is the best time ever to be alive, but we all feel like crap. If you buy that story, 
what happens when technology accelerates even more? And last point I'll end on uh, is I'm actually more uh, uh, hyperbolic about the speed of technology change than the folks at Singularity. And I make this case in the book that I think the Singularity folks are making a Moore's Law uh, exponential argument that, that holds up. Um, but what they miss is the cascading effects into the adjacent industries. You know, when you improve technology, you also improve medicine and agriculture. When you improve medicine and agriculture, you extend lifespans. When you extend lifespans, you have higher productive uh, uh, years and you can make breakthroughs yourself in material science, which cascades back into computing. If you really look at this cascade that's going on, what you see is not just an exponential uh, curve going up, but you see an exponential curve that's going broader at the same time. I the, the talk I did to NATO, I laid out what I call the algorithmic age, that it's multiple accelerating exponential curves with feedback loops between them, positive feedback loops. That's the monster of technology that I worry about because I look at what technology has done to us to get to here. What happens to the individual and the social group when we apply more technology? Are they going to feel even worse off? So until we can reverse what I call the great irony of technology, we've got a social problem. And until we begin asking nation states to uh, think about a future power structure, what you're going to have is massive change. Whenever there's massive change, there's massive conflict. If you pull out of Afghanistan, the warlords stand up and, and begin fighting more, right? So if there's a change in the structural, uh, you know, global power structure, there's going to be more conflict. So I don't want to end on negative notes, but that's the, the those are the things that keep me up nights and keep me motivated to write these books that perhaps only a few people will care about to read. I think that's a great way to end. There's a lot of energy in there. I'll just leave it on that note. And thank you for sharing your thoughts. Well, thank you for being one of the, the few people to uh, be open to, to thoughts as, as uh, different as this. So I really appreciate this well, conversation. Well, you're welcome. There might be more after this podcast, hopefully. <laughs> I, I would you. very much like that. It, it, that is if the book hasn't put you to sleep yet. And, and if you do have time, uh, I'd appreciate uh, uh, feedback and criticisms on the book as it currently stands. But uh, regardless, I just appreciate people being willing to kind of talk about this seriously for a few minutes. So really grateful. Thanks. Have a great day. Yeah. You have just listened to episode 104 of the Futurized podcast with host Tronana Undheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of thinking. In this conversation, we talked about the disruption of thought by technology and how to make the process more conscious and considerate. My takeaway is that technology is clearly disrupting thought patterns both at individual and collective levels. But what's the answer? Slow it down in order to better digest it? Another thing is that unless we do digest it, arguably technology doesn't change as much, right? So that's almost like a protective layer. But what the tech adoption process does not protect against is being excluded or being watched. It seems like those who need to reflect more don't always, and those who do reflect don't get the limelight on their reflections. How to resolve that conundrum? Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 101, The Future of Consciousness, episode 73, The Future of Social Learning, or episode 71, Future Tech, a preview. Futurized, conversations that matter.